In commenting on the passage before us this morning, Ephesians 4, verses 17 through 24, Harry Uprichard says, The work that begins in learning Christ, look and see that phrase in verse 20, the work that begins in learning Christ ends in being like God in true righteousness and holiness. That's from verse 24. Up Richard says, only God can effect such a radical transformation. Indeed, we cannot go from hearing about Christ and being taught in Him, as verse 21 says, all the way to being completely remade after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness, as verse 24 says, in our own power. We just can't do that. That's not a process that we just do. God must make a change like that. And this is what Paul has said God does, in fact, do over the last three chapters of Ephesians. We've seen over the last several months that God chooses to save people who are dead in their trespasses and sins. God makes them alive. God unites them to Christ. God gives them His Spirit. God works in them the holiness and blamelessness which He intends for them. They are not passive in this transformation, but ultimately it is God. The consistent witness of Scripture is that it is ultimately God who is doing it. God takes ultimate responsibility for the total salvation of His people. From election in eternity past, to justification in space and time, to our eventual resurrection from the dead, and to living in the freedom from sin that is to be our inheritance together with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth forevermore. It is God who has planned that, and it is ultimately God who will accomplish that. He will see to it that those whom He plans to save are in fact saved in totality, not only from the penalty of sin, but also from its power, which encompasses sanctification. God takes people from hearing about Christ and being taught in Him, as verse 21 says. He teaches them Christ, as verse 20 says, and He brings them all the way to being remade after the likeness of Himself, after God's likeness in true righteousness and holiness. This is ultimately God's undertaking. This is the Gospel. This is the Gospel from 30,000 feet. This is the gospel as it might look out the window of a plane. It's the big picture. It's the whole picture. But what does the gospel look like on the ground? As Jesus said in Mark chapter 1 and verse 15, repent and believe the gospel. On the ground. On the ground. Not from the air like we just saw, but on the ground. The gospel looks like a summons to action. To choose Christ. To turn away from sin. To turn toward Christ. Not in a meritorious way as if we needed to earn something. The very message of the gospel is that we can't earn anything. 
The very message of the Gospel is that Jesus has done everything necessary for our salvation. That He has lived a righteous life for us. That He has died a sin-bearing, punishment-bearing death for us. It is only by letting go of our own attempts at earning, our own attempts at saving ourselves, and clinging solely to Christ that we can be saved. And so the action of believing and the action of repentance cannot be meritorious. That just runs counter to the gospel. It can't involve any earning. But nevertheless, the point stands that on the ground, the proclamation of the gospel includes a summons to action. Repent and believe the gospel. This is the way Jesus himself preached it in Mark chapter 1 and verse 15. And this is the way that the apostles preached it. Repent and believe the gospel. A response to the gospel is required. The actions of repentance and faith comprise the only right response to the gospel. Therefore, if this is true... What must biblical Christianity look like on the ground? Again, not from 30,000 feet. From 30,000 feet, we could say that biblical Christianity looks like those who were dead in their trespasses and sins. But God, having loved His people with an everlasting love, chose to save them. And in the fullness of time, gave them the new birth. Even at that time when they were dead in their trespasses and sins, God made them alive together with Christ. And God is changing them. God is transforming them. God is working in them both to will and to act according to His good pleasure. Such that they will do the works that God has prepared beforehand for them to do. Ephesians 2.10 And that ultimately God will raise not only their souls, but even their bodies from the grave and bring them to live with Him forever in a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We could say that's what biblical Christianity looks like from 30,000 feet. But what does biblical Christianity look like from the ground? How do you know a biblical Christian? How do you know a biblical church? How do you know this person is a Christian the way that the Bible says Christianity should be? How do you know that this church is a biblical church? This is the kind of church that is a biblical church. This is an authentic expression of biblical Christianity. Well, if the gospel includes a summons to faith and repentance, you can recognize a Christian by the exercise, by the action of faith and repentance. You can recognize a biblical church by those that preach this free grace of Christ and summon people to faith and to repentance. Biblical Christianity looks on the ground level like faith and repentance toward Christ. Or in the language of today's text, Ephesians 4, 17-24, biblical Christianity looks like learning Christ and putting off the old self and putting on the new self. So if we're to be biblical Christians then, we need to figure out what does it mean to learn Christ. We need to figure out what does it mean to put off the old self. We need to figure out what it means to put on the new self. 
And we're aiming to do just that this morning. So let's begin with learning Christ. The first thing we need to see is the logical relationship between learning Christ truly and properly and putting off and putting on. And that logical relationship is this. Learning Christ truly and properly results in putting off your old self and putting on your new self. In other words, putting off the old self and putting on the new self in this text is the practical outworking of truly and properly learning Christ. More about putting off and putting on later, but I just want to mention at the outset so we have it clear in our mind. What's the logical relationship between these things? We need to see in principle the logical relationship between learning Christ and putting off and putting on. Now, about the phrase learning Christ, about that phrase itself, Sinclair Ferguson says Paul's language is, to say the least, unusual. How do we learn a person? We learn subjects and we learn facts, but we learn about people. So is this simply a different way of saying we learn from or about Christ? Perhaps, but becoming a Christian involves more than learning about Christ. It is learning Christ in the sense that we come to know Him. By way of analogy, if a couple was having conflict in their marriage, a trusted friend or an advisor might say to the husband, learn your wife. Learn your wife. Seek to learn her. That in the context, it would be a little bit more intuitive for us to understand what that means. The advisor or the friend would be saying, get to know your wife. Get to know her. Find out who she is. Figure out who this woman is that you're married to. That would be what we would be saying if we said to a husband, learn your wife. So those who have learned Christ then are those who have got to know Christ. Not just learn something about Him, not just learn something from Him, but those who really know Christ. Thus, those who have learned Christ is just another way to describe Christians. Christians are those who have learned Christ, who have come to know Him. And incidentally, I might add, Christians are those who are still, still learning Christ. As we learn Christ in the first place and better throughout the remainder of our Christian lives, as we get to know Him more and more, we come to find out, among other things, that one cannot be born again, as Jesus taught that we must in John chapter 3 and verse 3, one cannot be born again and still live the same way. To think that you have learned Christ without experiencing a radical whole life transformation is a grave error. That's one of the things that we learn as we learn Christ, as we get to know Christ. This new birth that comes to us through Him changes our whole lives. As we learn Christ, we learn also that one cannot be a disciple of Jesus without renouncing all He has. Luke 14.33, look it up if you don't believe me. 
One cannot be my disciple without renouncing all he has. It's a pretty direct quote. You cannot think that you've learned Christ while refusing in principle to let go of your career ambitions, to let go of your money, your home, your car, or whatever else the call of Christ might cost you. As you come to learn Christ, you learn that He demands ultimate allegiance. Then nothing, you can't cling to anything, anything ahead of Christ. As you come to learn Christ, you'll come to see that one cannot follow Christ and try to hang on to life as he knows it. Coming to Christ is not just adding Christ in to your already decent life. Just, just putting that cherry on top. Just bringing things to, that, to a sense of fulfillment or a sense of completion. The way that you sometimes hear new parents saying, man, when we had our baby, it was great. Like we just felt, we, like our marriage was great, but when we had our baby, it just felt like it just brought everything to completion. Jesus is not like, like a little baby that just comes into your life to give you just, just that extra little boost, that extra little sense of fulfillment. One cannot follow Christ and try to hang on to life as he knows it. It's not just like, yeah, my life's pretty good, but I just have this little void in this area of my heart, this pocket of my heart. You know, there's God, the God-shaped hole, right? There's a sense in which that statement is true. There is, really. Our hearts really will be, as Augustine said, restless until they find their rest in God. But it's not like just like, I got the, these areas under control, but I just have this void in this one area of my life. And maybe Christ can fill that. No, we cannot, we cannot follow Christ and try to hang on to life as we know it. That's not what biblical Christianity is. Jesus said, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel will find it. As we learn Christ, it's going to cost us in a very real way our life. It's going to change everything. It's going to have really drastic implications for how we live. So as we learn Christ... We recognize that we cannot try to hang on to life as we know it. We also learn that one cannot claim to abide in Jesus and not walk as He walked. That is, one cannot claim to abide in Jesus and not live as He lived. That's what 1 John 2.6 tells us. The holiness, the obedience to God, the love for both God and neighbor that were Christ's while He walked this earth must also be ours. One cannot claim to abide in Jesus and not walk as He walked. That's what 1 John 2.6 tells us. We learn also that one cannot claim to be loved by Christ without also Himself loving Christ in return. 1 John 4.19 says, We love because He first loved us. We often think about it from... The other perspective, why do we love? Well, we love because He first loved us. But the converse of that is true. If He loves us, if He has loved us first, 
we're going to love Him back. That you, you, can't, you can't have Christianity that's void of real love for Jesus. That's just not how Christianity works. Part of the response of faith to Christ is loving Christ. Coming to love Him. Coming to love Jesus. You can't, you can't find a real Christian that's going to say, Yeah, I, I'm a Christian, but I don't like Jesus. That just doesn't make sense. And so as we come to learn Christ, we also must come to love Christ. So all of these things and more, we learn as we learn Christ. As we come to know Christ, we we get more and more some of the implications of who, who He is and what He requires of us, what the right response, what the fitting response is to who Christ is. But alongside all of the things that we learn that we must do as we learn Christ, we also learn as we learn Christ that He has done something for us. We learn as we learn Christ that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. We learn that He suffered once, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. We learn as we learn Christ that no one took His life from Him, but that He laid it down freely. We learn as we learn Christ that Jesus willingly drank the bitter cup of God's wrath down to the dregs for us upon the cross after the Father answered no to the prayer that He prayed in the garden. Jesus came into the world to live an obedient, law-keeping life in the place of us lawbreakers. Jesus had no sin to put off and no righteousness to put on. For He was the spotless Lamb of God from His birth. And this Lamb was slain upon the cross after the pattern of countless many lambs slain throughout the whole Old Testament period. Jesus, the Lamb of God, was slain as a sin-bearing, punishment-bearing, substitutionary sacrifice for us. And so it is clear as we learn Christ, this is just a sampling of some of the things that we learn as we learn Christ. It's clear as we learn Christ that a a radical transformation of our very selves is fundamental to biblical Christianity. Christ's teaching is unmistakable on that point. Even just the small sampling that I just gave you unmistakably shows that a radical transformation of our very selves is fundamental to biblical Christianity. You can't be a Christian without radical whole life transformation. And Christ's person and work demand it. Not only His teaching, but who He is and what He has done demands a radical transformation of our lives. Not only as the Son of God, but as the Son of God incarnate. Appointed by God as the Savior King who shall rule and reign forever. After laying down His life as a substitute for us. 
upon the cross as the Son of God incarnate. He deserves not only our worship and our trust, but also our obedience. His self-giving on the cross for the salvation of sinners like us obligates us in the strongest possible way to return to Him not only our love, but also our obedience to Him. For these reasons, as we learn Christ truly and properly, we must necessarily make it our daily ambition to put off the old self and to put on the new. It is unthinkable to Paul here in Ephesians, and it should be unthinkable to us, that someone would claim to have learned Christ and yet not be continually striving to put off the old self and put on the new. So where do we begin? We're going to talk more about how to put off the old self next week as we continue on uh, from verse 25 through to the end of the chapter. But for now, let's answer the questions. What does the old self look like? And how, in order that we might know, how do we know what or who to put off? How do we identify this old self so that we can put it off? And then what does the new self look like? How do we know what or who to put on? Let's answer those questions for the remainder of our time today. So let's begin with what does the old self look like? How do we know what or who to put off? Well, Paul, here in Ephesians, he says basically, don't be like the Gentiles. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 17, don't be like the Gentiles. Now we know from the context, following on the heels of the end of chapter 2 and chapter 3 of Ephesians, that when Paul says don't be like the Gentiles, he's actually not saying don't be like biological non-Jews. That's not what Paul is saying in this section coming off the heels of explaining who is true Israel, who are true Jews, who is the true Israel, what Paul is saying is be like Christians and don't be like non-Christians. That's what he says when he says don't be like the Gentiles. Let me explain that just a little bit more for those of you who may have missed uh, some of the teaching of chapters 2 and 3. Galatians 3.7 says, It is not those, pardon me, it is those who are of faith that are the sons of Abraham. That's Galatians 3.7. It is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. This means two things. It means first, as Romans 9.6 tells us, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. So what that means is just because you're a Jew by birth, ethnically, biologically, Jewish, it does not necessarily mean that you're an Israelite in the way that Paul is talking about here in Ephesians chapter 4. Not all Israel is Israel. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. In the New Testament, you find Israel used often, not in a biological sense, but in this sense of who are the true people of God and who are not the true people of God. And Galatians 3.7 says, It is those who are of faith that are the sons of Abraham. So not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. But also, as we've been studying over the last couple of months, Gentiles who believe in Christ are no longer alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, as Ephesians 2.12 tells us, but have been brought near by the blood of Christ, as Ephesians 2.13 tells us. 
and are no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens with the saints. Chapter 2 and verse 19. And so as Romans 2, 28 and 29 say, No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit. So it is those who are of faith that are the sons of Abraham. Those who are of faith, biological Jews and biological Gentiles alike, who are Israel in the sense that Paul's using it here in Ephesians chapter 4. And it is those who do not have faith in Christ who are Gentiles in the sense that Paul's using it here. Whether they are biologically Jews or whether they are biologically Gentiles. So therefore, when Paul says, all of that to say, when Paul says in verse 17, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, he's not saying, don't live as biological non-Jews live. What he's saying is, don't live like a non-Christian. Paul's not talking about biological non-Jews when he says Gentile. Paul's talking about non-Christians when he says Gentile. And so he goes on to give this description of Gentiles or this description of non-Christians in verses 17 through 19. And he describes non-Christians with a chain of causes and effects. He says a whole bunch of things, but he puts them in causal relationship to one another. So the things he lists are futility of mind, darkened in understanding, alienated from the life of God, ignorant, hard-hearted, callous, sensual, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And then in verse 22, he uh, puts a, gives a little throwback there to Gentiles and says, deceitful desires. So he lists these nine things. But what, where does it all start? Look at your Bibles for a minute and try to figure out where does the lifestyle of non-Christians that Paul wants us to avoid, where does it start? Look at verses 17 through 19. See if you can see the causal effect there. I'm going to tell you in a moment, but I just want to see, I want you to look at your Bibles and see if you can see it for yourself. What's at the bottom of it? It's hardness of heart. Look at the end of verse 18. Hardness due to their hardness of heart. Their minds are futile. They are darkened in their understanding. They have given themselves, therefore, verse 19 says, up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. They have become callous. They are ignorant. That is, they don't know Christ as they ought. They don't know themselves as they ought. They have deceitful desires, as verse 22 tells us. Due to hardness of heart. Due to hardness of heart. So hardness of heart leads to ignorance, which leads to a darkened mind or ignorance and a darkened mind, you could say, are similar enough to treat them together, which leads to being callous, which means, leads to being sensual and greedy for impurity, 
which leads to being alienated from the life of God. This is the causal relationship between these things in Ephesians 4, 17 through 19. Hardness of heart. So when, when somebody has an opportunity then to learn Christ, so they come under the preaching of Christ, or the proclamation of Christ, or the witness to Christ in one way or the next. They attend church and Christ is preached. Or they sit beside a co-worker and the co-worker tells them about Christ. Or whatever. They have an opportunity to learn Christ. The message comes to them. That all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That there is none righteous, no, not one. That all we like sheep have gone astray. But that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. An opportunity comes up to learn Christ. The message is proclaimed. To allude back to some of the verses I mentioned a few moments ago. The message is proclaimed. That coming to Christ involves a whole life commitment. You cannot be Christ's disciple unless you renounce all that you have. You must be born again. You don't just need a a minor transformation. You need to be made entirely new. Who you are, not just what you have done, but who you are is unacceptable, is impure. You are dead in your trespasses and sins. You need to come to Christ entirely, giving up everything. To follow Christ. Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will find it. Come to Christ in faith and repentance. Rest your whole life on Him. Reorient your whole life around Him. The opportunity comes up to learn Christ. And the unbeliever, the non-Christian, responds... This verse tells us, with hardness of heart. Now again, we can zoom up to 30,000 feet, right? And see that they're corrupt because of the fall into sin, that they're Adam's descendants, and so they have a corrupt nature from birth, and so on and so forth, and that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers, etc., etc. We could zoom out and look and see, and all of that stuff is true. But on the ground, what happens is that the gospel is preached. That Christ Jesus is held forth in His glory, in His sufficiency for the salvation of sinners. That the bad news is laid out. There is no other name given under heaven by, among men by which you must be saved. That you are dead in your trespasses and sins. That you have no hope of saving yourself. That even your righteousness is as filthy rags. Oh, but Jesus came into this world to save people like you and me. I'm a sinner too. But I've seen the glory of Christ and I've rested my soul on Him. Friend, won't you rest your soul on Christ? Only He can save you. Won't you put your faith in Christ Jesus? But the response is hardness of heart. Which leads then to ignorance 
into a darkened mind. There's this lack of clarity about who God is and about who we are in relation to Him. And there's this, then thoughts have consequences. If we think wrongly about Christ and who we are, then it leads us to live wrongly. And so the hard-hearted and ignorant give themselves over to sensuality, become greedy for impurity, and live lives which are sinful, which are an abomination to God. This is the way that non-Christians live. This is what it looks like on the ground. It's hardening hearts toward Christ. Wrong thinking about who Christ is and who we are. And wrong lives then. Sinful lives that flow from that wrong thinking. This is what it looks like. This is what the old self looks like. This is who we all were. All of us who are Christians were once hard-hearted. People would preach Christ to us or tell us about Jesus and we thought, who cares? We were hard-hearted towards it. We were callous. We didn't want to hear that stuff. We didn't care about that stuff. We were hard-hearted. That's the old self. That's who we were. And that's how the Gentiles are. One question we should all wrestle with at this stage is, are you still here? When you hear Christ, when you have this opportunity to learn Christ, do you respond in a hard-hearted way? Does it fail to move you? Do you fail to care? Are you callous towards That would lead to thinking wrongly about who Christ is. That would lead to a sinful lifestyle. Are you, are you still there? Maybe you would consider yourself a Christian, but if you're honest, you're characterized by hard-heartedness toward the things of God. You're ignorant in a profound sense about the glory of God, the deadliness of sin, the wonder of the cross, etc. Even if you can articulate a sound theology of all of these topics. Your ignorance shows because you don't live in light of these truths. You're callous and you're greedy for impurity. Content in your sin. If this is you, maybe you would consider yourself a Christian. But Paul wouldn't. Paul says that this is not what the Christian life looks like. This is what the non-Christian life looks like. Now it should be said that we all do sin. We all do respond hard-heartedly at times. But is this characteristic? Is this characteristic? So moving on from the negative example, Paul says, don't be like that. Don't be like that. What does the new self look like? How do we know what or who to put on? Paul wants us, when we have the opportunity to learn Christ, not to respond in a hard-hearted way, not to be callous toward it. And then... Therefore, to become ignorant or to remain ignorant and to remain in, with a darkened mind. But rather, when we, have, when we have the opportunity to learn Christ, Paul wants us to be receptive to that. Paul wants us to learn Christ really and truly. Paul wants us to learn Christ properly. 
He says it explicitly in verse 23, that we ought to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Now in the context here, he's not referring to the Holy Spirit as if he say, say, would be saying, be renewed in the Holy Spirit in your mind. That's not what he's saying in this context. In this context, what he's saying is, be renewed in the attitude or disposition or the command center of your mind, the innermost part of your mind. Be renewed there. That's where renewal needs to start. That's where renewal needs to happen. And what he's saying is, he's saying that in contrast to what he has just said about the Gentiles. The way that Gentiles respond to the opportunity to learn Christ, in the spirit of their mind, they are hard-hearted. In the spirit of their mind, they are callous. What he wants us to do is in the spirit of our mind to be soft and supple, to be teachable. Isn't this, this is just the opposite of everything that he's just said about the Gentiles, isn't it? He wants us to have softness of heart, to look at the scriptures and to hear what the scriptures say of Christ and to be soft-hearted, towards that as people talk to us and and minister the things of Christ to us whether for the first time or whether for the umpteenth time as people unfold the scriptures to us and for us and with us as we look at the Bible and we read things as I I mentioned to earlier like unless a man be born again he cannot see the kingdom of God a soft hearted response to that says wow I need to be made new. I need to be made entirely new. I'm not okay as I am. A hard-hearted response says, why would I need to be born again? What's wrong with me? A a soft-hearted response as we hear, unless a man renounce all that he has, he cannot be my disciple. A hard-hearted response says, well, I won't be your disciple then. A soft-hearted response says, oh, that would be worth it. That would be worth it to follow Christ. A hard-hearted response to whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will find it. A hard-hearted response says, no, I'm content with the status quo. Life as usual. A soft-hearted response says, I don't understand necessarily all of what that means. But oh, that God would help me lose my life in this way that Christ requires for His sake and for the gospel in order that I would find it. See? And as we respond in a soft-hearted way and get to learn Christ better and better, we're no longer ignorant. We're no longer darkened in our mind. The opposite of darkened would be to enlighten. The truly enlightened person is not he who denies the supernatural or downplays the supernatural. The truly enlightened person is the one who casts his soul upon the supernatural Son of God, who learns Christ and realizes, wow, I'm lost, but Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God, came to save me, came to find me, came to reconcile me to God. He came to make me new. He came to transform me. That's real enlightenment right there. That's good, real, genuine, enlightened thinking. Oh, I need Jesus. 
There's that song, some of you I'm sure have heard, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour, I need you. That's truly enlightened thinking. That's someone who's really come to learn Christ. Somebody who is seeking more and more not to harden themselves to the demands of Christ upon their lives. But somebody who is seeking to subject themselves to the demands of Christ upon their lives. Somebody who is not greedy for impurity and sensual, but somebody who is greedy for purity, as it were. Oh God, what I want so bad is to live a pure life as You would have me live. To please You. To walk closely with You. To glorify the Savior. To really be a genuine disciple of Christ. Oh God, I'm greedy for purity. Not greedy for impurity. Don't be like that, he says, right? But greedy for purity by implication. Oh God, help me. So this is the this is the new self that Paul is saying here as he describes it. Right? Put off that old self. That old self that's hard-hearted. Put it off. Put on a new self that's soft-hearted. Put off that old self that's ignorant and gain true understanding of Christ. Put off that old self that's greedy for impurity. Put on that new self that's greedy for purity. Put off that old self that's alienated from the life of God. Put on that new self that is a recipient of the life of God. That doesn't mean get saved over and over and over and over again, but it means to come participate more and more fully in the life that God offers to us. They have this advertising campaign in Canada trying to get people to stop smoking cigarettes where they're putting pictures, graphic pictures on the cigarette cartons of people whose lungs and throat and mouth have been damaged by cigarettes and the obvious implication is look at what this does to a person right it doesn't give life it takes life it doesn't mean that the minute you smoke a cigarette you die or the minute that you stop that you just enjoy life to the fullest but the point is that smoking cigarettes kills you right and that if you want to have uh, life don't smoke cigarettes right that's the obvious thrust of that advertising Campaign, And I think here this is largely what's in view because Paul is already writing to those who have been justified, who have been reconciled to God. And so when he's writing to them not to be alienated from the life of God, it wouldn't make much sense to say be justified or be reconciled to God. I think what's in view particularly here is don't live in ways that kill you. Don't live in ways that suck spiritual life out of you. Right? Don't smoke spiritual cigarettes, as it were. Right? Don't be smokers. Right? This is essentially what Paul is saying here in this passage. The biblical, biblical Christianity looks like faith and repentance toward Christ at the beginning and all the way through. And that's, that's the means by which over the course of our life, we come to enjoy more and more fully the life of God. 
we come to enjoy more and more fully the salvation that He's won for us. You can't be more justified than you already are. If you've trusted in Christ Jesus, you're reconciled to God. Your sins have been pardoned. You're clothed in His righteousness. But that doesn't mean that you're enjoying as much communion with God as you ever will. That doesn't mean that you're walking as nearly to God as you ever will. That doesn't mean that you're as holy as you'll ever be. I think what Paul is saying here is having learned Christ in the beginning, continue learning Christ. Continue learning Christ. Live with that renewed mind. Take advantage of every opportunity to learn Christ. Put off that mind that is hard-hearted. Put off that approach to the things of God that is hard-hearted. Put off that old man. Put on this new man. Being soft-hearted, supple, teachable, humble, ready to be instructed from the Word of God. Put off that and put on this. No longer walk as Gentiles do in the futility of their minds, he says, by implication. Do live as true Israelites should do with minds that are not futile. And it all, it all starts with, it all stems from this disposition of our hearts towards the things of Christ. What do we do when we have the opportunity to learn Christ? Put off that hard-heartedness, that futility. Put off that approach to learning Christ that will kill you. Put on that approach to learning Christ that really leads to life, that leads to the putting off and the, to the putting on. Paul's going to talk about other things that we put off and other things that we put on in the next section. And as I mentioned, we're looking at that section next week and we'll look a little bit more at how to put off the old self and how to put on the new self. But we've seen today that learning Christ results in putting off your old self which resists the message of Christ, sin and salvation, including the demand of faith and repentance. And learning Christ results also in putting on the new self, which embraces the message of Christ, sin and salvation, including the demand of faith and repentance. In other words, putting off the old self and putting on the new self is the practical outworking of really and truly learning Christ. Another way to say this is that faith results in repentance. Or that repentance is the practical outworking of faith. So biblical Christianity on the ground level looks like learning Christ and putting off our old self and putting on our new self. Or another way of saying the same thing. Biblical Christianity looks on ground level like faith and repentance toward Christ. Does your religious life look on the ground level like faith and repentance toward Christ? If biblical Christianity looks like faith and repentance toward Christ, does yours, does your life, does your version of Christianity look like faith and repentance toward Christ? Maybe you would consider yourself a Christian, but you're not busy putting off the old self and putting on the new self. If so, that might indicate that you've never truly learned Christ. Maybe you've misunderstood the nature of biblical Christianity. 
the nature of true discipleship to Christ. Maybe you've misunderstood the nature of the response that we're called to make to the gospel, namely to repent and believe. Maybe you've misunderstood the way that we're supposed to repent and believe and have thought that it's something that you do do one time at the outset and then stop doing all the way through. If your religious life doesn't look on the ground level like faith and repentance toward Christ, you may be like the Athenians in Acts chapter 17 who were very religious but worship an unknown God. In other words, a God that they never learned. You should give us some sober thought if this is you and speak with some mature Christians about the state of your soul if your life on the ground level doesn't look like ongoing faith and repentance toward God. But some of you have learned Christ. You've received the message that you are sinners and that who you are is inadequate. And so you're trusting in Christ for salvation from your sin. Your mind is no longer darkened. You're not calloused anymore. You feel it when you sin. You care. You're eager to repent and change. You're busy putting off the old self and putting on the new day by day. All of this is because God has begun a good work in you. The only difference between you and the unbeliever is that while you were dead in your trespasses and sins, God made you alive together with Christ. You have been working at sanctification all right, but you've only been able to work because God has been working in you both to will and to act according to His good pleasure. So there's no room for boasting. That's what the Christian life looks like from 30,000 feet. But if you're learning Christ more and more and putting off the old self and putting on the new self day by day, then your life does look like what the Christian life should look like. And that should be encouraging. God has begun a good work in you. And He who began a good work in you will carry it through to completion. So keep it up. Whatever your situation this morning, whether for the first time or again, whether for the umpteenth time, look at the Bible. Learn Christ. Learn Christ. Learn Christ. Who He is and what is the right response to Him. And then exercise ongoing faith and repentance toward Him. Put off the old self day by day. Put on the new self day by day. Faith and repentance. This is what biblical Christianity looks like on the ground.